You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Thank you, Mark. It's great to have you back. I think it was in the spring. You got, we got a chance to get to know you a little bit better as you shared some of your story in advance of Ecuador, and I'm sure it was a wonderful summer. Uh, Juan Carlos Ortiz, a name some of you may recognize, a fairly well-known Argentinian pastor, used to tell a story of a member of his congregation who was a jeweler. And he came to Dr. Ortiz one day and said, I'm going out of business, and I want you to come to my store, and I will sell you whatever you select at cost. Juan Carlos said, oh, that's very nice of you, but uh, I don't have time to come uh, tomorrow. He said, well, come the day after. Well, I don't have any time this week, actually. Uh, my schedule is full. He says, you must come. Ortiz says, I can't come. He says, I tell you what I'll do. I'll bring my stuff tomorrow to your office, and I'll spread them out on your desk, and you can just choose what you would like. And it was an impossible offer to refuse, so he said, very good, that's great. Next morning, Dr. Ortiz and his wife are walking into church as they had driven together, and uh, Martha looks at Juan Carlos and happens to say, do you know what day it is today? And uh, Juan Carlos says, of course I do. Help me. And she says, today is our anniversary. And he says, oh, honey, how could I possibly forget your anniversary? Come into my office and see what I've laid out on my desk, whatever you choose. <laughs> and then he said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Think what Juan Carlos Ortiz learned in that moment is the same thing that this woman at a party learns. And that is that Jesus Christ is more committed to you than you are to yourself. In the big things and in the small she has a problem, and you have a problem. We all have problems in our lives. And the question that I want to explore with you this morning is, what do you do with your problem? You can be like me. My favorite strategy is worry, hand-wringing, and anxiety. Or you could do what this woman does. You see, there are two alternatives with every problem that you have. Whatever you brought to church this morning, maybe you brought a sense of inadequacy, maybe you brought an ethical dilemma and you just don't know what to do with it. Maybe you brought a mountain of guilt and, you, and, and you're buried underneath it, perhaps a relationship that's grown cold and loveless. Maybe your body is in revolt and you're no longer captain of the ship. Perhaps you face a fear, maybe a fear of failure. Whatever you brought, there are more problems in this room. There are faces and fingerprints. Jesus invites you to bring it to Him. There are two things you could do. One is you could look at the problem. You could fixate on it. You could focus on it. You could stare it in the eyes until something somehow resolves. Or you could turn your eyes and set them on your Savior, Jesus Christ. You could look to Him. That's our choice. This text tells us, look to Jesus. That's the invitation. You can look to Jesus right now with whatever you have that's challenging you. This text that John gives us, John the Evangelist, here in the second chapter of his gospel, moves us from the macro to the micro. We, in chapter 1, find ourselves down on the, on the floor of the Rift Valley up north, the Judean Valley along the Jordan River, struggling with macro social and economic problems. All of Israel is going to rise, and we're baptizing one another and repenting for the forgiveness of sins and inviting the Messiah to come one day and to make everything right. And then, chapter 2, John zooms way in 
way into a town, a little village called Cana that's so obscure, he has to keep giving it its territory. It's Cana of Galilee. You might have heard of Galilee, but you wouldn't have heard of Cana. It's so small, it's one family. It's, it's just two people, it's a bride and a groom, and it's just one woman who sees the problem, actually. Just one woman at a party. So you see how he zooms way in. And she states the problem. Verse 3. They have no wine. Now, if that seems like a really small problem to you, and it is a small problem, I hope you're also the kind of person that then would, would extrapolate from that on the basis of this text and say, well, therefore I know that there is no problem in my life that is too small to catch the attention of my Savior. I mean, if this seems like a small problem to you, then you should be encouraged. This woman is at a party and they run out of wine and probably the grandparents of the bride could care less about this. The elders of Canaan, they don't mind. The Tetrarch of Galilee doesn't even know that there's a wedding that's happening. And as far as Tiberius goes, the this, this Caesar at the time, the emperor of Rome, he'd be fine if all of the Middle East were to dry up one day. And yet, your Savior wants to make a difference. The Lord and Savior of all creation, the one who rules heaven and earth, he's at that party because of that problem. How small do you think your problems could be? You've got his attention. He's looking at you and he's wondering, are you looking at me? Now, to this woman, it's not a small problem. Actually, to her, it's, it's looming rather large. And I want to take you back 2,000 years and on a little journey to first century Palestine. I want you to picture what these weddings were like. Very different from our weddings. So picture this. We're at a home and it's dark. We're standing outside. The long period of betrothal, one to two years typically, has come to an end just like that. The waiting is over. And now you see a man who's standing at a front door as proud as a peacock. This is the groom. He's got a diadem on his brow, flowers, garland, uh, uh, leaves. And beside him is the best man, his best friend. These two men, they're holding torches blazing in their hands with huge smiles on their face. They're about to conquer. Uh, They're about to go across this town, Cana, to pick up the bride. And around them is gathered a collection of of, uh, mad cats and party animals, these buddies that they grew up with, best friends, brothers, cousins, and they're all ready for a huge party. They're all carrying torches or lanterns, and they're ready to go, but they await the signal of the patriarch, the, probably the father, the groom at this house, who will look and make sure that the tables are all spread and the festivities are ready, the stocks are uh, full, and he will then say, you go. And that groom will go winding through the streets of Cana to find, to fetch his beloved. And as they go, they'll make a lot of noise, They've been drinking already, and they'll be singing and stomping and making trouble. You'd hear them approaching if you were at the other house on the other end of town. This is the bride's house, and if you look through these brightly lit windows, you'll see inside there a young woman, teenage woman, and she is wearing the finest clothes that every member in this family could collect together and beautify, and you smell the perfumes on her. The flowers are rich. And the elderly women in the room, which is packed, are rocking back and forth with a wise knowing. And the children in the room are buzzing in circles underfoot. 
And when they begin to hear these men approach, everything quiets down, and they pull back from the windows and they wait. They wait for the call of the bridegroom, who with a shout will call forth his lover. The door will swing open, the bride will go out, and the whole party then will flood together. And you've got then an avalanche of celebration moving back through the town as the groom and his men bring the wife back to his home for this great celebration. Even if you weren't invited to this party, and I think probably the whole town of Cana was invited, you'd know it was happening. Some cranky old man sitting on a stoop, he'd see this flickering light moving through the city. He'd hear people singing in the footfall of dancing. He'd hear words like from the Song of Songs, ancient words, but this was their pop music. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is gone. The rain is over and past. The flowers appear in the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Guests would come down these aisles and alleys and side streets and fill this parade with energy and life. And they would end up at the groom's house. And here there'd be a party. A couple hours, you think? All night, maybe? Seven days. That was the typical Palestinian what? Seven days. Can you imagine having an open bar for seven days? I know what you're asking. All you dads, all you young adults, who pays for this? Right? That is the question. And the answer is the community pays for it. They will be gathering gifts. And, as, as, and you're going, that sounds pretty good. As, the, uh, as these uh, guests come, they don't come empty-handed. They come with material gifts, uh, provisions for the party, but also things that would uh, offset the cost of the festivities and set this couple up for a happy life. Together, They are investing in this couple, and they bring generosity. And as they do that, they all know that there's one thing that the groom has to do. And here's, here's the key that you have to remember. The bridegroom always provides the wine. That's his job. He's on the hook for the bar bill. The bridegroom always provides the wine. And so when this woman says they have no wine... She's talking about a problem, and we have court records, about which lawsuits can be filed. We bring our stuff, and you're going to stiff us? She's talking about a problem. If it's not just a legal liability, it's certainly a social liability, because for the rest of their lives, this couple will have a stigma. This is the couple in our town that thought they could take from all the rest of us and give nothing back. The shame in a culture of hospitality would be unbearable. So this is a big problem. They have no wine. But here's the question of the morning. What does she do about it? See, she brings it to Jesus. That's the answer. She brings the problem to Jesus. Now, for me, I think this is weird. For us, we go to the Bible story. I know this. But remember, Jesus has never done a single miracle. John says this is his first miracle. So what does she expect about Jesus? Does he have kegs up his robe or something like that? I mean, and, and where's he been? He's been fasting in the wilderness with a guy who's been eating wild honey and locusts, right? He's not been hanging out at the pub. This is not happy hour down here, uh, you brood of vipers, as John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness. This is who Jesus is. He's a follower of John the Baptist, and he's brought four or five of John's disciples. Does Mary really expect that Jesus and his disciples will go rooting around the town looking for wine in the middle of the night? What does she expect? And the answer is, whatever. 
She doesn't know what Jesus could do or would do. She doesn't bring him a proposal. She just brings him a problem. And he sets it right in front of them. And if you say, yeah, this is so weird that she would bring this to Jesus, Jesus is right to say no, you know, because he says, you know, this is not my time. What, what do I have to do with this whole thing? And, and it's right for him to say no, right? I mean, that is what he says, isn't it? Doesn't he say no to Mary? And then she turns right around in verse 5 and she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In the Greek translation of that Aramaic, John puts the word whatever in front. Whatever he tells you, you do. The so New King James gets that right. Whatever he tells you. Now, we, we're familiar with that word whatever, aren't we? Whatever. But, I mean, do you hear the difference in tone? I think you pick it up. Whatever is an expression of resignation or indifference or sometimes despair. Whatever. I've lost control of this thing. But that's not the spirit with which Mary brings this problem to Jesus. She says to the servants, whatever he tells you, you do. You hear the expectation in her tone, in that one word that expresses so much of healthy spirituality, whatever he should tell you, you do. She's not looking at the problem. She's not trying to fix it. She's not hoping she's clever enough. She's not hoping to get through it. She's just giving it to Jesus and saying, whatever you do is what's needed. Now, I want to tell you that is so countercultural for us in Seattle. Recently, Lena passed away. And oh, they called the funeral home. Hello, funeral home. Yes. My wife, Lena, died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. We'll send someone right over to pick up the body. Where do you live? At the end of Eucalyptus Drive. Uh, can you spell that for me? Oh, how about I drag her over to Oak Street and you pick her up there? Right? We are so resourceful in Seattle. I come to know Seattle as uh, one of the world's great capitals of innovation. I think we live here, we make our money here on the good idea. We see a problem and we fix it. That's just who we are in this town. That's who we are as Americans. And we just completed a fortnight of, of politics. And I don't know which week you tuned into, maybe both. But if you did both, you learn this. Everybody agrees, whether you're a progressive or a conservative, that we have problems in the world. Everybody agrees on that. And everybody wants, did you notice this, hope. But I'm here to tell you today that you will not find hope in a political leader, you will not find hope in getting the right platform, as important as those things are. You will only find hope in Jesus Christ. And that's the invitation of this text. We bring it to me. Here's a woman at a party and she's faced with a crisis. And she turns her face to Jesus. That's her only agenda. Her agenda is, Jesus, will you take full responsibility for this because it's just bigger than me. And notice what happens when she delegates responsibility to Jesus without prescribing the plan. She feels a sense of freedom. And our theme for the year is that Jesus might increase, but we might decrease. This is what she's doing. She's modeling it for us. So you say, Jesus, I want you to increase in the midst of this trial. I'm going to find a way to get myself out of your way because I believe you're the one who brings life. You are my salvation.
Did you notice that John doesn't give us the name of this woman? To John, she's the mother of Jesus. Now, why would he not give the name? I think, and this is just speculative, I think it's because, he, first of all, he wants us to know that the resources are not in Mary. This is not about Mary. So I don't want you to focus on Mary, the great Mary. It's not her resources. And he doesn't connect us to the party. He doesn't tell us why. We'd all like to know, why is Mary there? Yes, it's nine miles north of Nazareth. She's kind of in the area, but is she related? Is she a friend? We don't know because, again, John doesn't want us to fixate on the relationship between Mary and the particular problem. Don't look at the problem. And even the relationship with Jesus. He, he, he wants us to catch her relationship to Jesus, and so he labels her the mother of Jesus. But Jesus turns right around. And did you notice what Jesus says to her? He doesn't call her mom. He calls her woman. Why does he do that? It's not rude as it might sound to us, but what it does is it shifts attention away from the maternal relationship to the discipleship relationship. Because you and I are going to be tempted to think, oh, Mary, of course, mother of Jesus. She could get whatever she wants. She can pull the strings, right? I don't have that. And Jesus says, I want to tell you, as privileged as that relationship is, my mom, you have a more privileged relationship, and that is of a disciple. You're, you're a disciple of, of the Lord and Savior. And that's bigger than being the mother of Jesus. It, it's about your relationship to Jesus. Not the problem, not seeing yourself as a victim, but seeing yourself as his beloved. And uh, sometimes we don't know what he'll do in our lives. So all we can say is whatever. We can't imagine a solution. All we have are empty, six empty jars. We know we need wine. This is the spirit. This whatever is the spirit that uh, we've come to know in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, in Mary. Because remember what happens when that angel comes to Mary, this young teenage girl, it says, in effect, to Mary, hey, i got a plan for you. How does this sound? How about an unplanned pregnancy? How about an out-of-wedlock delivery? Uh, how about uh, being a single mom and, and mostly destitute, trying to raise a son whom everybody, when they use polite language, will refer to as illegitimate? How's that sound, Mary? And you know what Mary says? Well, I don't think it sounds good. But here's what she says. Here am I. Let it be with me according to your word. Whatever. Not because she embraces the circumstances, but she embraces the Savior. She knows something so good about who God is and what he wants to do in her life. She welcomes even adversity. She looks to him. Anne Rice who came to faith in Jesus Christ, gave her life to Christ as an adult, struggled for years. And I know many of us have struggled and resisted. But here's what she says. In the moment of surrender, I let go of all the theological or social questions which had kept me from God for countless years. I simply let them go. There was a sense, profound and wordless, that if he knew everything I did, uh, not having to know everything, if he, if he, sorry, if, if he knew everything, I did not have to know everything. And then in seeking to know everything, I'd been all of my life missing the entire point. No social paradox, no historic disaster, no hideous record of injustice or misery should keep me from him. No question of scriptural integrity, no torment over the fate of this or that atheist or gay friend. No worry for those condemned and ostracized by my church or any other church should stand between me and him. The reason? 
It was magnificently simple. He knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. And he doesn't for you and me either. Jesus says, you don't look at your problem. You look at me. Focus on me. Last week, I had the privilege of meeting with a member of the congregation who's joining. I think maybe right now the new members class is happening. And she said, you know, I just came back from this great cruise in Alaska. But my kitchen had been invaded by rodents. And I had the folks come and they said, you've got to replace the insulation in your roof. They've torn it up. $3,000. She said, $3,000? I don't... I'm looking at my checking account. I don't see $3,000. I'm trying to pay off this Alaskan cruise. And she apparently paid for herself and a couple friends or family. And she began to worry because that's what we like to do with our problems. She said, I worried about what would happen if I had to raid my retirement account. I worried about what would happen if winter came and I didn't have the insulation. I worried and worried about all the money. And she said, then I felt someone tapping me on the shoulder, metaphorically, and saying, do you trust me? And this is Jesus. Do you trust me with your finances? And she went like that. And she said, I guess I can, can't I? I guess I can, can't I? She said, just a few days later, I found myself, um, ha- happened to talk to a friend. I'm at a bank, and the, the banker comes up and says, Sue, hey, can I just get a quick word for you? I got a question. Pulled me into the back office, and he said, you know, just recently, uh, one of these West, uh, you've got a Westinghouse bond that has matured, and it's $3,000. What do you want me to do with the money? And she goes, yeah, it happens to me all the time. And she goes, I know exactly what to do with the money. It was not 3100 It was not 2900 It was $3,000. And Jesus was saying, you can trust me in every area of your life because I love you. Now you go, what about when the check doesn't show up in my checking account? Or what about when the water doesn't turn to wine? Because it doesn't all the time. Here's where you have to understand what John is doing when he writes this gospel. He doesn't call this a miracle. John calls this a sign. S-I-G-N. A sign is something that points to the bigger thing. The sign isn't the thing. The sign points to the bigger thing. This is not about wine. This is not about catering. This is not about parties. This is about Jesus, and the sign points to Jesus. Jesus, that's why he says no. He says, he says, you know, what do I have to do with this? And this isn't my hour. He's causing us to ask all kinds of questions about what is Jesus' bigger story. Martin Luther comments on Jesus' sort of strange reply to her, and he says what he's really trying to do is get her heart and set it on grace. Listen to this. He says, Thus Christ lures all hearts to himself to rely on him as ever ready to help, even in temporal things, and never willing to forsake any. Christ waits to the very last moment when the want is felt by all present and there's no counsel or help left. This shows the way of divine grace. It's not imparted to one who still has enough. And has not yet felt his need, for grace does not feed the full and satiated, but the hungry, as we've often said. Whoever still deems himself wise, strong, and pious, and finds something good in himself, and is not yet a poor, miserable, sick sinner and fool, the same cannot come to Christ the Lord, nor receive his grace. Jesus is saying, this is impossible, Mary, isn't it? She says, yeah. So do whatever, Jesus. What does this sign point to? John makes sure you notice two things at the end of the story. You, you, you catch this. That wine, its quantity 
and its quality. 120 to 150 gallons of water. They could open a private label. We could flood 17th Avenue. There's an outreach for you. This is a ton of wine, way more than they need. And then the quality, right? Don't you love what the chief steward says to the groom? By the way, notice where he goes, right to the groom, because the groom always provides the wine. He goes to the groom and he says, man, the, what was the translation mark? The inadequate. You, this is, he's, he's saying, you know, what you've been serving is inadequate. This is unbelievable. And here's when the shoe drops for the first century listener. Abundance and quality, it reminds them that God had made a promise throughout the Old Testament prophets year after year that one day God would leave heaven and come down to this earth in a kingdom with an abundant celebration and a feast that would be running with wine. Things like, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strain-cleared, and he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. It will be said on this day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. Remember, the bridegroom always provides the wine. And when Jesus provides the wine, at that moment, I, I just picture Mary and these disciples looking across the crowds and seeing Jesus' face with a twinkle in his eye as he raises a chalice to conceal his huge smile. Because he has just pulled back the curtain on his glory. And now they know that heaven itself has come to sweep them into eternal love, to commit themselves. The Father, Son, and Spirit have come to commit themselves to you, the bride, and to take you home in great celebration. That's what this sign points to. In the midst of our problems, we have now met Jesus who wants to commit, who has committed himself to us and all of his resources to you. When we turn to him, we'll always find relief. He may not solve the problem in the way that we want it solved, but he will give us himself, his love. We say, fix my job, fix my friend, fix my 401k, fix my health, and it will be enough. Just do that. Just get me through this. and It'll be enough. That's all I ask, Jesus. And Jesus goes, that's not enough. You're not asking for enough. I have wine that you haven't even dreamt of. I want to give you myself. And I'll use all of that stuff to do so if I have to. So this morning, put yourself in his hands. You have a choice. You can put yourself in human hands or you can put yourself in his. The choice is yours. It makes all the difference in this world and the next. Just finally, uh, we had a wedding here, a great wedding. Kate got married and a uh, great celebration. Reminds me of a, a friend who did a wedding uh, years ago. It was a long aisle. The uh, bride stumbled at the end of the aisle. And reflexively, the groom lurched forward to try to get up there and help her. The pastor held him back and restrained him. And uh, I had to explain, this is not the way it goes. She's coming to you. You stay here. But she had trouble with her heels, got caught in the dress and couldn't make it. And so patiently, again, respectfully, this was a military wedding. The groom turns over to the pastor and says, request permission to head down that aisle. <laughs> and the pastor said, you better go. And he went up that aisle and he grabbed his beloved and he 
swept her into his arms, and he carried her down to the altar. I want to tell you right now, Jesus, the Son of God, sits on the right hand of the Father. And he looks at you, and he sees what you're going through, and he says to the Father, now, now, and the Father says, you wait. But any time now, he's going to say, you go get her. And the Son of God is going to come back and He's going to claim His church in His arms with great celebration and bring us all home. The celebration has begun. The wine has been poured. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have been gathered by You this morning so that You can fill us with wine, the abundance of Your love. We confessed already that we brought empty pots. Now we confess that you are bigger than whatever challenges us. And we bring ourselves to you. And we look into the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we rejoice. And we say to you, whatever. Whatever in our lives, whatever in our church, whatever in this world. We look to you, Jesus. In his name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.